if solar geo is done by the island states that are desperate, it's going to be viewed one way by the international community. If it's done by the Trump administration, it's going to be viewed a very different way. University of Ottawa's Institute for Science, Society, and Policy, this is Disruption Discovered, a show about the forces that are reshaping the 21st century and the people who spend their days thinking about them. Welcome, I'm Brendan Frank. Climate change is in many ways the ultimate disruptor. In the years to come, it will touch every scientific, societal, and policy endeavor we undertake. And on timescales that matter for people alive today, it's not a question of solving or fixing climate change. It's a question of slowing it down. And one of our most drastic options for slowing climate change down is geoengineering. But making decisions around when and how to use geoengineering is incredibly thorny. Here to discuss all of those thorns is Jason Blackstock. Dr. Blackstock is an internationally respected scholar, educator, and policy advisor, and he's involved with both geoengineering tech and geoengineering policy. He founded University College London's Department of Science, Technology, Engineering, and Public Policy. He's the founder and CEO of the nonprofit How to Change the World, and he sits on our advisory committee here at the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy. Jason Blackstock, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Brendan. Great to be here. So let's start with the the basics. What is geoengineering? The term geoengineering has really evolved in its use. When I started working in this space in about 2008, Geoengineering really encompassed two very different sets of technologies. On the one hand, there was this term carbon dioxide removal, and these were geoengineering technologies that ranged from artificial trees uh, made out that looked basically like a large air filter system to scrub carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through to ocean fertilization or other ways of absorbing CO2 out of the atmosphere. That has really evolved in this last decade to no longer really be geoengineering because geoengineering has this sort of Frankenstein-like idea to it that it's, it's intentionally altering the planet. In the last 10 years, we've started talking about negative emission technologies. Same concept. How do we pull carbon out of the atmosphere? And that is now very mainstream within climate policy. Every single Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, uh, scenario into the future demonstrates that we need to pull carbon out of the atmosphere if we're going to avoid going over 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade. So by mid-century, we need negative emission technologies. Now there's a whole bunch of companies in that space. Of course, that's very different from the other category, which is solar geoengineering. And that's the, that is a much more controversial bit that we can talk more about throughout this. Okay, before we do that, can you talk a little bit more about the, the less controversial elements of geoengineering? Yeah, so these days, uh, negative emission technologies or carbon dioxide removal has gone mainstream in a whole bunch of different ways. Here in Canada, uh, out west, there's a company called Carbon Engineering. It was founded by David Keith, now a professor at Harvard, was then at Calgary, that actually has a plant up and running and that is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And the costs that, that David's plant is estimating they could do it for could be as low as $150 a ton. That That's quite low when you think about the sort of uh, avoidance costs in the several hundred, even thousand dollars per ton. Um, there's programs like the X Prize, the Carbon X Prize that I'm on the board of that are looking at how you do this and scale it up. Of course, these are pilot programs right now. These are things that are pulling uh, maybe a few hundred, maybe even a few thousand tons out of the atmosphere. Meanwhile, we're emitting 10 gigatons of carbon still back up into the atmosphere. Now, 
to take even one gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere, you're talking about building a structure something like the height, the width, and 10 times the length of the Great Wall of China. Now, we can do it. We build cities with that much infrastructure, but that's a big cost. And of course, if you're pulling it out at the same time as you're putting 10 times more in, that's there's a big time lag in terms of building the infrastructure to do that. So the idea that we need negative emission technologies by mid-century, we need to scale that up a lot, but we've got a long, long way to go before we're doing that at the scale that we need to. But everyone sort of agrees that that is something that is going to have to happen. Every every single uh, science model demonstrates that if we want, if we have any hope of staying below 1.5 or 2 degrees, even if we stop burning carbon now, stop burning fossil fuels right away, there's still a lag in the climate system and tipping points and disappearing ice and glaciers that's very likely to drift us over the 1.5 to 2 degrees. And of course, we're nowhere close to that. So we absolutely need to be able to pull that carbon out of the atmosphere. But that's a decadal to centennial build of the infrastructure we need to do that. Okay, now we can talk about the more controversial stuff, solar geoengineering. What do we what do we know about solar geoengineering? And what don't we know about it? That's a very good question. So in in 2006, uh, a guy named Paul Crutzen, who was a Nobel Prize winner, he won the Nobel Prize for really for being one of the few people who figured out the ozone problem. He published a paper that said, you know, if we don't mitigate, we are going to have to think of some drastic options like solar geoengineering. The example he used was spraying aerosols up in the stratosphere. Now, the stratosphere is the bit of the atmosphere that's above the clouds, so it's the it's the sort of part where we're flying above a thunderstorm. The reason he was talking about spraying aerosols up there is because there's a natural experiment that's happened a number of times in history where a volcano blows up really explosively and injects sulfur dioxide particles up into the stratosphere above the clouds. These particles form just tiny little, basically bubbles of sulfur dioxide that reflect a little bit of sunlight back into space. And by reflecting that sunlight back into space, that energy no longer gets absorbed by the climate system, so it cools it down. In 1992, Mount Pinatubo erupted, and it sprayed about 10 million tons of sulfur up into the, into the stratosphere. And in the next year, the global temperature was about half a degree centigrade cooler. By two years later, by, 20, by 1994, all of that sulfur had slowly sedimented out and temperatures were back on the same, same arc. So what do we know? You ask the question, what do we know about geoengineering? Well, we know for solar geoengineering that if we put particles in the upper stratosphere, we could cool the climate down by basically turning the sun down. Now, there have been other interesting proposals like building space mirrors in order to do that. Well, we saw how well, for example, with the Hubble Space Telescope, you put stuff up there, you don't necessarily have all the control you want. That's not a great idea. There have been a few other ideas out there like trying to add particles to clouds to make them bigger and brighter. But if we're really talking about an area of solar geoengineering that we know we can do, and there's been natural experiments at a large scale, we're basically talking about stratospheric aerosols. The bit that is often hardest to immediately wrap our heads around when we start talking about this though is, well, can we do it and how much would it cost? What about the technology and, and what about the cost? Turns out that with a fleet of something like 15 to 30 airplanes, and so that's like a really small um, uh, airline company, flying in the stratosphere, so you need a little bit of engineering to get them up there, for about a billion dollars a year with that fleet of airplanes, you can cool the climate system by a degree Celsius or two. A billion dollars a year. 
that is really small by comparison to any sort of budgets we're talking about for dealing with climate change mitigation or even more when it comes to climate change adaptation impacts. If you're pulling a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere for $150, for example, that exactly. is, that would multiply that trillion Exactly. Yeah. So the, the, what we know at this stage, though, is we know that nature has done these experiments. We know we could do it ourselves, but we also have lots of uncertainties around what the impacts would be. We don't know cooling the planet by turning the sun down while you wrap a blanket around it to warm it up of CO2. Those are not the same things. So you are there. We know from climate models that there are things that we would get a world with lower temperatures, but possibly some changes in hydrological cycle. In other words, where the rain goes, but we're also seeing that with climate change. And so there's a lot of scientific uncertainty, both with the idea of just letting climate change run its course and getting warmer and warmer, or with using geoengineering, solar geoengineering, to cool the climate system and provide sort of a 1.5 above pre-industrial flatline, we're going to get some climate changes. The real question is, which risks are higher? And we don't, we don't have good answers to those. The climate models seem to suggest that a world that where we don't allow the temperatures to keep go up, at least we avoid tipping points in the climate system. We avoid some of the impacts, but there may be some unknown consequences in terms of where rainfall patterns go, where storms go that we just don't know in advance. So as we've seen uh, with recent climate negotiations, COP, implementing policies to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions is really difficult. And if the idea is to slow the effects of climate change Geoengineering almost strikes me as a bit of a pressure valve. We're getting some relief, but we're not actually solving the underlying issue. Short answer is I could not agree more with that framing. That is, in an ideal world, if you had a, a benevolent dictator who was a science geek who wanted to sit down and sort of look at what is the, the best way of thinking about this type of technology, it would be, Brendan, exactly as you described. It's not like we want to spray enough aerosols up there that we'd go back to the temperature in 1900. We've already adapted to more than a degree in, in, in centigrade and change on this planet. There are there would be a lot of risks in going backwards from that. But the idea of using solar geoengineering to even just slow down the rate of warming so that we would have more time to adapt to the changes that are going on in, in a purely hypothetical world if we were to have five degrees of, of warming of the planet over a thousand years, well, actually ecosystems and human systems could adapt easily on the timescale of a thousand years. It's the fact that it's all happening within decadal to, you know, 10 years to a century that's making it so hard. So the idea of using solar geoengineering to slow, even slow down or possibly pause the rate of warming while we decarbonize the system while we go through those transitions, which we know are economically difficult or socially difficult, while we build some more of the adapt adaptive capacity we need for protecting people from the rising intensity of storms, et cetera, et cetera. That is the ideal way in my mind to think about what solar geoengineering could help us with, especially for protecting the, the most vulnerable 2 billion people on the planet from the ravages, the suffering that, that they are already going through with the impacts of climate change. It does seem to me that that is the best possible case for solar geoengineering, where emissions are on a downward trajectory, they are falling, 
while we figure out how to pull more greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere than we're putting in, we use geoengineering, solar geoengineering, to cushion the blow. That is absolutely the best case scenario. I think the reality of where we're at now, I mean, we've had how many... In the news today is this acceleration of forest fires that we're seeing in California, in British Columbia, in Australia. That's already starting to look like the beginnings of potential tipping points in the climate system. So in an ideal scenario, we would be holding solar geoengineering in reserve while we're really focusing on mitigation and and get to that sort of balance point between more carbon coming out than going in. That would all be brilliant. The reality is we may not have that much time. I, I am acutely concerned that the changes we're seeing in the Arctic, the changes that we're seeing in forests, in the Amazon, in other places where we're, uh, the, the impacts on the oceans with ocean acidification, decreasing oxygen, all of these things are suggesting that we don't have the decades that it's going to take in order to even begin to change the direction of travel. Emissions are still going up, they're not going down. Of course, if we start using solar geo now, the real concern is, does that just let people off with continuing to use fossil fuels for the rest of the century? And the answer is, scientifically, that would be crazy. Scientifically versus economically versus politically, these are different questions. And this is where the real tension around, should we even be... There are those of us in the, the solar geoengineering community that have had the conversations, what's the risks of even talking about this? What's the risks of putting this on the table? Of course... The reality from my perspective is when you've got as many billion pe billions of people suffering from climate impacts now, it for me would be morally wrong not to talk about something like this that could provide that protection. And we have to explore it from my point of view. So if we decide that the, the risks are worth it, if the world decides that solar geoengineering is something that it absolutely needs to do, what would we expect the public reaction to be? And how can we, how can we plan for that? Well... I love the framing of that question, Brendan, because it begs the question, who is the world deciding to do this? It would be so nice if the, you know, the climate process was demonstrating we are one world all united in making a decision that's going to uh, mitigate climate change. Shall we say that's not necessarily the model we're living with right now? I, in the world in which we live, it, the real, it begs the question, who's making that decision to begin with? So the question of, how are, what, what would you expect the public reaction to be and how would we plan for that? Well, let me float two entirely different scenarios and, and I want to express to the, to the listeners here that these are extreme hypotheticals that I am putting out there to make a point, not because I think either of them should necessarily happen. But at one end of the spectrum, you have Exxon or Chevron turning around and proposing this and getting uh, uh, the, the conservative... Uh, American Republican far right turning around and going, oh yeah, now we believe in climate change, but we've got the answer and putting it out there. That's going to evoke a very different reaction from the liberal left than if you have, for example, someone on the left who on the, you know, a Bernie Sanders turning around and going, vulnerable people around the world are suffering and, and are in acute pain now, we have to do this. Then you're going to see a very different public reaction in part because solar geo... I, I don't think we can think about it in a purely scientific concept of this is, you know, an idealized thing that we should be dealing with at the UN. It's inevitably going to be political the way it evolves. 
we, we've, we've done sort of surveys of public reaction and what do people think as individuals. And if you just talk about geoengineering and solar geoengineering, you get sort of a mixed spectrum of, of the sort of reasonable responses of, ooh, that's a little concerning, but yeah, I can see why we might need this to avoid damages. But the second you put it into economic or political context where the decisions ultimately have to be made to spend the money or not or to take the big political step, my concern is that's going to pull the conversation into the political polarization and that will shape far more of the public reaction. And the question of how do you plan for that? <laughs> that is, that I think is the, the, the multi-trillion dollar question on how we plan for responding to different political manifestations of this if it becomes part of a populist agenda. My country is suffering, I have the answer, I'm just doing this. And if that happens not in the U.S., which were the, the sort of polemic examples I used, that could happen in India, that could happen in Africa, that could happen in Latin America. And I think we have to be prepared for how do we plan for that? I think we plan for that by thinking through what are the consequences, how would different countries, how would different political environments respond to it, and how do we try and foster more conversation about this before that happens so that there's at least more dialogue. If the, on the flip side, say the international community decides it's not going to conduct solar geoengineering. You have some sort of Geneva Convention around messing with the upper atmosphere, that the, there's too much uncertainty or we can't agree how to do it, whatever the case. How do we plan for a world where a rogue actor decides that it is worth the risks, say an island nation that is about to be completely underwater, and starts conducting solar geoengineering anyways? How do we govern in that world? And what are the policy implications? I think the only way to answer it, how do we prepare, is we run scenarios. We, we need to be red teaming this. We need to be sitting around tables and imagining possible scenarios and talking them through and thinking about how different communities would respond. I've given talks on this in places ranging from Greenpeace to NATO. And the, the let's just say the scenarios that they play out and the responses that they would have to this are subtly different in terms of the resources they have to deploy and how they would think about engaging it. Um, I don't think there is... I, I, I wish, I mean, I've written on this, I, a book came out last year, which is an edited volume where we had 60 plus authors writing about this. And if you ask that question of each of those 60 authors, they'd all give you two different answers. So there are going to be conversations, I believe, in places like the UN Security Council. There's going to be conversations in places like the climate conventions, the UNFCCC, United Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Conference of the Parties, the COP, um, about what to do if a rogue actor does something like geoengineering. But if it's, if solar geo is done by the island states that are desperate, it's going to be viewed one way by the international community. If it's done by the Trump administration, it's going to be viewed a very different way. Both could be considered rogue actors by different perspectives. And so even that concept of rogue actors, it fits back into the, you know, if it, one scenario that has often been raised is, well, what if there's a, a sort of James Bond villain, Greenfinger, that decides to spray this in the atmosphere? Well, okay, you got a billionaire that's going to go off and do this rogue. They're probably just going to get their plane shot out of the sky. Because if you don't have a military to back it up and either Russia or the U.S. decides they don't like it, that plane's not going to be in the air very long. It's only really because the costs are so cheap, this, is, this has nothing to do with costs. This is all about 
politics. It's about geopolitics. It's about the political decision-making nationally and internationally. And I'm giving possibly what I, I can understand the listener if they're, if they're sitting there and thinking, this is the least satisfactory answer. There is no answer here. And you're getting the point then. There is no simple answer. This is a societal discussion about how we engineer the climate of the planet. At that scale, there's not a single person on the planet that doesn't have an opinion or a voice or a perspective that is relevant, but how you take that broad society and integrate it with the small group of scientists thinking about the technology and its development and create a governance model, it, it takes these challenges to the very extreme. And I don't have, all I can say is that activities like there's a, another beautiful acronym, SRMGI, the Solar Radiation Management Governance Initiative. I don't know why they came up with that name and acronym, but it's essentially... Probably because it's so memorable. Exactly, yes. Uh, stands in the mind as, as the least understandable acronym I've ever heard. Um, it does create the uh, dialogues between the scientists and communities all around the world in developing emerging countries and developed countries. There's uh, Janos Pazdur and the... Uh, uh, the initiative he's leading out of the Carnegie um, Foundation to create more of a dialogue with policymakers around the world around solar geoengineering and its potential implications. And it's all just laying the foundation so that more people know, more people have an awareness of the issue. And so whenever something happens, whether it's a rogue actor or, for example, what's happening right now, Andrew Yang, a presidential candidate in the U.S., has geoengineering on his platform as part of his climate response. That's sort of where I expect that the way solar geoengineering is going to evolve is we're going to see someone like an Andrew Yang that gets more credibility somewhere and catapults it into the mainstream conversation. Puts it on the policy agenda. Puts it on the policy agenda. Puts it in the public agenda. Puts it in the political mindset. And that's when the more people who know and are ready to have a conversation, the better. And that's really the most important prep right now. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, so I'll just finish off with what are some resources you would you would recommend to listeners who might want to learn more about this subject? So for the science geeks, which I imagine there are a few of them on, on the audience for the podcast, uh, the Royal Society Report, which came out in 2009, is still just as valuable as it was in 2009. It did a, does a really good summary. Sadly, the technology hasn't advanced significantly since then on the solar geo side. Um, for an introduction that is more narrative and gives you a bit more of the history and the framing. Uh, Oliver Morton's book, The Planet Remade, wonderful book, well worth reading through, gives you a bunch of framing. Um, the International Institute for Advanced Studies, Advanced Sustainability Studies, has a database of geoengineering resources ranging from meetings through to publications that you can take a look at. And that has all the sort of information you want to get. And I already mentioned Janos Pasteur's project at the Carnegie uh, Foundation, um, so that's a few places to, to go and start. Dr. Jason Blackstock, thank you very much for coming on. Brendan, thank you very much. The field of geoengineering has splintered into two very distinct branches of science. The first, negative emissions technologies, will be an inevitable part of our efforts to hold global temperatures to safe levels. But negative emissions technologies will require a constant, coordinated and decades-long effort to scale up. In the meantime, the cost of pulling greenhouse gases from the atmosphere is a reminder that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The second branch, solar geoengineering, is a bit of a cheat code. Tempting, politically expedient, fraught with scientific uncertainty, 
potentially impossible to govern or craft meaningful policy for. But while some may refuse to entertain solar geoengineering as an option, there's no obvious way for them to stop others from doing so. Global emissions hit a record high in 2019. How quickly we can reverse this trend may ultimately determine whether future decisions about solar geoengineering will be made with forethought and care or under duress. Disruption Discovered is produced by Alicia Aziz, Eric Cinnamon, Raphael Desordi, and myself, Brendan Frank. Our composer is Jackson Palmer. Special thanks to Monica Gattinger, Jonathan Deegan, and the University of Ottawa Library. For more information on the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy, you can visit our website at issp.uottawa.ca. Thanks for listening.